morning. I'm Abigail Pecklew. Please join me in scripture from Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Jeff Schultz, one of the pastors here at Faith Church, and it is good to be back here. Uh, Amelia and I and uh, the Dirksons and the Snyders had a fantastic time. I just need to clarify uh, if I'm understanding my Indiana lingo right. We were in Lebanon, not Lebanon. Um, we did not send a missions team to Boone County. Um, <laughs> So we had a fantastic time. I hope you guys can join us for a lunch afterwards because uh, we just came back so excited and encouraged and eager to start thinking and praying and discussing uh, what we can implement here from what we saw and experienced over there. Uh, I also noticed that uh, I didn't preach for the last few weeks. I went out of town and I come back and the pulpit is gone, so I don't know what's going on with that. But uh, we're trying out something different and uh, we'll see how it works. Uh, it, it's good to change things up. In the fall of 1993, Amelia and I moved to Racine, Wisconsin, where she had more than anywhere else basically grown up. Uh, so Amelia was understandably excited to uh, move back to essentially her hometown where her parents still lived. Uh, I was not disappointed to move to Racine, but I wasn't as excited as Amelia was. I, it was basically kind of ambivalent because it was her town, it was her family, it was her friends, it was her connections, that was the reason we were moving there. Amelia's folks had lived there for decades, they had deep roots in the community, lots of friends, they were involved in clubs and organizations and civic groups, and I felt a little bit like an outsider. I think part of it is I had grown up more than anywhere myself in Oklahoma and Texas, and then I'd gone to college in Virginia. So I didn't understand why anyone wanted to live that far north in Wisconsin. Uh, and then moving there, I struggled at times to understand uh, these northerners and uh, at times even what they were saying. Uh, Amelia talked about getting a drink of water from the bubbler. 
And uh, it took me a while to figure out that's a drinking fountain. Like, we have a word for that in America. It's, but in Wisconsin, they have another word for it. And I had no idea before moving there what a cheese curd was or what someone would use it for. Uh, so there were just, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel like I really belonged there in some ways. And part of that also was already having this sense of call to vocational ministry and having this kind of expectation that we probably weren't going to live in Racine long term. So, yeah, we got involved in church. Uh, we made some friends there. But I didn't know a lot of people outside of that, and, and part of that was also due to the fact that the company division that had hired me and brought us to Racine basically folded after nine months, and I picked up a job in the northern suburbs of Chicago. So I was commuting 80 or 90 minutes each way uh, every day, Monday to Friday, and so I felt disconnected from people where I lived, and it was hard to make connections with people where I worked. Uh, I, I did get involved doing some work with Habitat for Humanity in Racine, which was a great ministry, uh, helping underprivileged, underserved people be able to get into decent, affordable housing. But even that was in another part of the city from where we lived, and so I didn't really connect with people that way. By the time we left Racine, after having lived there for two and a half years, I really reflected and wondered what impact I'd had in the time that I had been there. Racine never felt like home because I figured I was just there temporarily and I don't really have a lot of connections here. Uh, we'd been involved in church. I'd done some volunteer work, like I said, but when we left, really the only people that I knew very well were either family or people at church, which was fine. I mean, I was thankful for that. But I wondered, what would it look like for me to really be good news in my community? And that's a question not just for people who move around a lot. It's a question for those of us who've lived in the same home, in the same community for 20 or 30 or 40 years. How do we as Christians relate to the world around us? And what difference does it make in our lives? I, I think we default often to maybe one of three responses. One, sometimes we just we hate the world. We're opposed to it. We look down on the culture around us, maybe with fear and hostility, and we pull back, we isolate ourselves in, in kind of our own little subgroup, not just Christians, but all of us kind of tend to do that. We end up only hanging out with people who look like us and, and think like us and believe what we believe and reinforce what we already agree with. And then we peer out over the walls at the world with suspicion and mistrust. Or uh, sometimes we just, we could say, use the world. We go out into the world to get what we can out of it, but really just kind of for ourselves, whether that's money or career advancement or entertainment or whatever it is. We, we go out, we earn a living, we seek our own personal good, we take what we can get from it. I would drive down to Illinois every day and earn a living and pay for my house back in Wisconsin, and then I'd drive back to my house in Wisconsin and sink down on the couch tired and watch some TV and then go to bed and get up the next day, rinse, repeat, rinse, cycle, repeat. Or third, the world defines us. It, it shapes us. We become absorbed by the world around us. We let other people's goals and values and priorities and interests determine what our lives are going to look like. 
and we become indistinguishable from everyone else. So how do we relate to the world around us? That's what we've been looking at in this discipleship series that we started all the way back in January. What does it mean to live out our mission to be informed and winsome ambassadors of Jesus Christ in and to our secular culture? We spent the first third of this series really talking about what it means to be informed. We need to understand ourselves. We need to understand the world and the way it is and kind of the cultural moment that we're in. And then we talked about how we develop, how we grow as ambassadors, how God shapes us from the inside out to be people who would love and reflect him in the world. And now we're in this third section of this discipleship series that we're going to wrap up in just the next week or two here, looking at what it means to be winsome. What is our posture towards the world? What is our attitude? What is our perspective in a way that would reflect Jesus' heart and Jesus' mission and Jesus' priorities? Now, if you've missed any of those messages, you can catch up with them at faithliveitout.org and uh, forward slash flourish. There's even a summary of of all those if you want to jump in here. But a few weeks ago, Joey took us to this passage in Jeremiah 29 uh, and really kind of from the 10,000-foot view, to help us understand the story that we are a part of. Because remember, Joey helped us see we can't understand our part in the story. We can't make sense of who we're supposed to be if we don't know the story that we're in. And today, we're revisiting Jeremiah 29. So you can turn there in your Bibles, or if you grab one of those Bibles in the seat uh, underneath in front of you, it's on page 780. And the background, just a quick refresher to to where we are in God's story, is God's people have been driven out of the land that he promised to give to them. Their rejection of him, their idolatry, their disobedience has brought his warnings and ultimately his judgment. God's own temple is destroyed. God's people have been taken into captivity by brutal oppressors and are living in exile. God's city has been sacked and burned and its walls torn down. And and now God's people are living halfway across the Fertile Crescent in a land that is not their own, in a place that's hostile to their faith, where they have no access to worship God directly. And some of the prophets are saying, look, It's all going to be fine. This is just a temporary interruption. God is not going to leave you here. Just a year or two more, and God's going to reestablish the king. He's going to reestablish the kingdom. We're going to go home triumphantly. This is not where you belong. This is not your home. So don't worry about the world around you. Don't settle down. Don't care about it. It's all going to be fine. You're short timers. And God sends word through the prophet Jeremiah to say, yes, You are in a foreign culture where you don't feel like you belong. And no, this is not your ultimate home, but this is where you're going to live. And I want you to understand how to relate to it. And I think that's a message that God has for us too. As his people living in exile in this world that is not our home, where we are called to be ambassadors of another king and another kingdom. And so, that's what we want to look at today. Now, I mentioned, uh, I think, 
briefly and, and probably previously how many times we moved around growing up, and that's not particularly uncommon. Uh, statistics tell us that something like 20% of the American population packs up all their belongings and moves every year out of their communities to somewhere else, probably because of a, a job transfer, a promotion, a, a better offer, a better opportunity. And what that tells us, I think, is that real estate agents secretly run the economy <laughs> because they're the ones making all the money off of this, right? So wh whatever that movie was from the 60s, one word, real estate. Uh, no, what I think it seriously tells us is that Americans are optimistic people. We just are. We think there's always a brighter future, there's a bright horizon around the corner, uh, that there's a better tomorrow, we're always going to be climbing the ladder, and so we're moving often looking for a bigger salary or a promotion or a nicer neighborhood or a bigger home or more leisure time or less yard to take care of maybe. And we're thankful for those freedoms. I mean, those are not bad things, but there are some downsides to that. For one thing, it makes it hard for us to sink roots in the community, doesn't it? It makes us hard to get to know people. It makes us hard to make a difference if we're always on the move. And we're not even always on the move physically. Sometimes we can just be on the move mentally because I'm always looking for something better. There's something bigger out there for me. And my family lived that out. By the time I was 11, we had lived in seven different homes in six different states, from Texas to New York to Illinois. My fifth grade in elementary school was my fifth school since preschool. And in my mind, there's just this blur of homes and neighborhoods and friends that I barely remember. And I recall it was just hard to make friends. It was hard to keep friends. And you get to a point where you sort of feel like, what's the point? because we're probably only going to live here for a year or two. So why should I bother making any friends? I don't know how long we're going to be here. Why bother? And I think maybe that's similar to what these people of God were thinking. This isn't our home. Babylon's not where we belong. The elder prophets are saying we're probably not even going to be here that long. Our home is in Palestine. God's going to take us back. And so they had every reason to do nothing significant in this place. And, and you heard in the reading, there were prophets telling them what they wanted to hear. This, this place doesn't matter. It's an interruption in God's plan for you. You're going to get out of here soon. So don't even pay attention to it. It's understandable that we could feel that way as Christians too, right? I mean, for one thing, if God's going to judge this world and it's going to go away, why should we get attached to it? And if things are going to get worse until Jesus comes back, then maybe it's good if things get worse. And maybe we shouldn't try and make the world better because then we're just keeping Jesus from coming back. Or maybe it's not that explicit. Maybe it's you know, more along the lines like, I want a better neighborhood. I want a nicer place to live. Surely God would want me to make more money. So I've always got my eye out there for a better deal and another place that will be more attractive to me. I think the first thing that God is saying to us in this message is that God's people commit to their community. God's people commit to the place where he has us. 
Did you hear that in verses 5 and 6? Look. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Multiply there. Do not decrease. In other words, God is saying, invest in the place where I have you. Set down roots. Make a commitment. Don't be transients. Don't always be looking on the horizon for the next better thing out there. I want you to care about the place where you are now, even if you're only there for a short time. Because as Christians, we understand that we don't ultimately belong here, right? This, this world is not our ultimate home. We're looking for an eternal one where we have a better inheritance and where we will dwell with Christ and all of his people eternally. So does that hope cause us then to reject this world or to actually care about it? Because listen, if our hope is in this world, that in a way is what keeps us from really being free to love it. Does that make sense? If I'm looking for my fulfillment, for my success, for my inheritance, for my permanency in this place, I'm always going to be restless. It's only when I know that I have another permanent better home that now I'm free to actually love this place because I don't need it to be everything for me. Now I can invest in this world because my hope is not here. I'm not trying to make this world heaven, which actually frees me now to make it look more like the kingdom. Because I'm not anxiously trying to make it become something it will never be for me. I thought about this uh, in relation to a friend of ours, Mark DeSantis uh, in Florissant, uh, one of our elders at church. Uh, he's a software engineer for a medium-sized company in St. Louis, really bright guy. Uh, he applied for a job with Apple in the Bay Area. And they liked him, they flew him out, they gave him the tour, uh, he discovered it was this great opportunity. I mean, of course, it's a beautiful location, a huge increase in salary. It would be a, a great career move for him. And Mark turned it down because he came back and he said, you know, as I was praying through it, I realized I, I, we have family here, we have church here, we have roots in this community, and we really believe God has us here in Florissant for the good of this community. And when the Michael Brown shooting happened and, and all the chaos and the upset and the conflict that came as a result of it, Mark was part of a group of people across races and denominational lines that came together to build a group called One Ferguson that was looking for ways to work together to serve and bless and help heal the community, which he would never have been able to do, obviously, from Cupertino or wherever the Apple Borg exists out there. I don't know. Mark chose to say, I want to go deep rather than broad. I, I don't want to be a mile wide. I'd, I'd rather be deep and invest myself here. And, and we can say that when we realize as God's people, I don't have to have the best place and the biggest home and the nicest neighborhood because this place is not ultimately my source of hope or significance or fulfillment or purpose. It doesn't matter whether I live here for 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years or my whole life. Christians of all people ought to be able to love and care for and invest in our communities 
because we're not trying to get, get it to give us life and significance. God has already given us that in Christ. I have eternal riches in Christ now. And, and I don't just go to my job and live in my community and look at it for what I can get out of it. Now I'm going into those places saying, what does God want to pour out through me as I would invest myself here? You know, over the last 10 or 20 or 30 years, it seems like every time there's some significant tragedy or disaster, there's people willing to step up on a platform and give an explanation for why this happened and who's to blame for it. And sadly, sometimes that's Christian leaders doing it in not very helpful ways, explaining why God allowed this to happen and whose fault it is. This can be hard to hear, so fair warning. Pagans, abortionists, and feminists, the ACLU, all of those people who tried to secularize America, they helped make 9-11 happen. An earthquake in Haiti was blamed on Haitians having a pact with the devil. They're evil people. That's why they got an earthquake. New Orleans had, quote, a level of sin that was offensive to God, so he sent Hurricane Katrina to destroy 1,800 people and the city with it. Now listen, there's no doubt biblically God does work through human choices and through natural disasters to accomplish his will. And our rejection of God is worthy of and sometimes does bring judgment. But whether any of those tragedies were literally an expression of God's judgment for those specific sins, I really don't think we can know and certainly cannot say. I do know that I am just as deserving of judgment as any of those people in any of those tragedies, and I have a level of sin that is offensive to God. And so it should make me slower to jump in to look at the world in that way. And one of the, for me, really disturbing things about some of those comments is I think sometimes you can almost hear a delight in those assignments of justice that those bad people are finally getting what they deserve. Thank God that, you know, that he finally stepped up and poured out his wrath and his judgment because those people are just evil. You almost get the sense, you kind of hear like the world is better off without those people. Now maybe we can do things the right way. Now maybe people will stop sinning. The people of God in Jeremiah's day had every reason to hate the Babylonians that they were living around. I mean, these people literally had the blood of their friends and relatives on their hands. They were cruel oppressors. It would be easy to pray God's judgment on them. And there's an expression of that in Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. And it goes on even more graphically from there. I think one way to understand that is it is foreshadowing God's ultimate judgment on sin, on all who will reject and oppose him and who are not reconciled to him through the gracious offer of his son. Those are painful and disturbing words to read. 
but maybe they're most meant to grab our attention and help us see if we don't see some of ourselves in them. Because maybe if we're honest, we could see, we can feel that way maybe sometimes, can't we? That we can be really angry, really angry at people and groups and organizations and media outlets that seem to be working against God and hating his gospel and condemning his church and pushing his word out of our culture and we get resentful that our faith is ridiculed and excluded and and it's easy for us to find fault and see all the problems in the world and all the immorality and all the brokenness and to be angry at all the evil out there. And yet God says, pray to me for this city where I have placed you. Pray to me, God says, for the city. God's people are called to love their community. God's people love even this community where he has us. Because to pray for it does not mean to pray God's judgment on it. It means to root for it. It means to ask God's blessing. It means to ask that God would do good to these people. And we do that because we would love them in the same way that Jesus came, not to condemn the world, but to love it, and that through him we might be saved. Pray for their blessing and for their good, God says. Be happy when things go well for the community where they live. Love these people. Man, that is hard. That is a hard word to tell to Israelites living in Babylon. And maybe it's hard for us to hear too. Because these are not my people. This is not my culture. Their problems don't ultimately affect me. Let them figure it out. I I wash my hands of them. Because these are people who may hate you, maybe people who oppress you, maybe people who reject you, who've hurt you, who want to absorb you into their culture, who, make, who want to make you lose your faith. And God says, love them. Love them. Pray for them, for their good. And, and one of the ways that we can do that is by watching our tendency to spend all our time with people we already agree with and whom we already like and who are easy to get along with and and then our homes become not just a refuge of peace but a retreat where we run in and close the doors to a hostile and difficult and broken world. What would it look like for us not to disdain the world, not to hate it, but to love it as Jesus came to? I think one of the things that helps us start to love the world is being intentional to get to know and care for people who don't know Christ, to befriend people who are far from him, to open up our homes and and make them places not just of refuge for us and for our family, but to welcome outsiders in. I, I saw a thing online recently that I really liked that said the gospel is a welcome mat. It's an open door. The gospel comes with a key to our homes that we give to other people to invite them in. We're called to show hospitality not just to one another, but to the Babylonians out there, to the people who are different from us, to Maybe make deliberate plans to include them in our lives, to, to pray for the non-Christians around us. I, 
I was challenged when I, uh, I ran across this question recently. When is the last time I took a meal to someone who wasn't already a member of our church? When was the last time there was a person in need who wasn't a Christian, who wasn't a good person, who deserved it, who wasn't on like a target list of people that were, we would love to see attend church here, but we reached out intentionally to bless and love them simply because it was a neighbor in need? Maybe invite neighborhood kids over from school to hang out with you, host soccer team parties, have neighbors over for dinner because you got to eat anyway. It's getting to be grilling season, right? It's an excellent opportunity to get to know our neighbors and, and hang out with them. Pray and love for the people who are around you who don't share your faith, who don't know Jesus, who don't share your values because God loves this community and he calls us to pray for this place, to seek its welfare. Manal Tayar is a young Lebanese woman that I and a number of us got the opportunity, the joy to meet and get to know the last couple of weeks we were in Lebanon. She grew up there and her youth was shaped by, yes, growing up in a Christian home like many of us, but she also grew up in a fractured country where everyone and everything is divided along religious lines. If you are a Sunni Muslim, you live in a Sunni neighborhood, you shop at Sunni stores, you go to a Sunni school, and you don't interact with Shia or Druze or Alawites or Maronites or Orthodox or Protestants. And it's the same way for everyone. And Manal was shaped by growing up in the middle of armed conflict. Uh, 2006, there was uh, a war between Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon and Israel, and her family had to move 21 times before she was 18 years old. The way her parents lived, though, she says, was always to mingle and to be a part of those who were different. Unusually in her context, she grew up with Catholic friends and Shia friends and Sunni friends and Alawite friends and Druze friends, and, and she went to a school with people from a lot of different backgrounds from her. Now, the conflict that she grew up with uh, in a good part of her life um, meant that for a period there were days when there was just intense bombardment in the town where she was living. Uh, no sleep, uh, they couldn't go out because the roads were too dangerous and were targeted for attack by the Israelis. It was safer to stay at home. And so in all those sleepless nights, Manal found herself feeling pulled, convicted by God that she needed to take a side in this war. Not, not to take up arms, not to fight, but to pray. God showed me, she said, how far we were as a people from him. There, there were nights of deep repentance, crying out to God for my nation, for his mercy. That the war awakened in me a desire to bring our country closer to God. Uh, Manal's first job after college was working in economic development. And uh, basically she was in charge of a center that provided vocational and uh, business management training for uh, Lebanese and Syrians to start their own businesses. And Manal said the project was a disaster. It was a huge failure. She said, I realized after the fact that our intervention was actually doing more harm than good because it was actually increasing the tension and the competition between the Lebanese and the Syrians who already have a long history of mistrust and dislike of each other. We ended up essentially equipping them to compete against each other for the same jobs. 
I realized that economic development was important, but reconciling people first was more important for the health of the whole community. So that led Manal to a job at Arab Baptist Theological Seminary developing a peacemaking initiative. And basically, Manal brings together Muslim youth and Christian youth to talk about how their faith shapes their identity, their worship, their approach to conflict, and then how they live that out in their everyday lives. And then they work together as a group to identify problems in society and come up with ideas for them. Things like gender inequality and pollution and domestic violence and, and then implement the plan together as Muslims and Christians. And then come back and go find more people to draw into the program. It's, it's really cool. And, and there's more exciting stories like that that you get to hear at lunch, so come to lunch. But, but what Manal's story illustrated for me was that we don't live in this community just to enrich ourselves. We're not here for just our own sake, for what I can get out of my job, for what I can get out of my community, to, to go out into the world to get all the power and the status and the wealth and the comfort that it can give me. God says, I have you here to make this community better. That's the third thing Jeremiah tells his people, that, that's the core here of verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. For in its welfare you will find your welfare or your flourishing. When it flourishes, you will flourish. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the place I have called you. God's people bless their community. That's why he has us here. We seek not our own personal peace, but the peace of the place where he has us living. So that leads us to start asking things like, where in the world around me, in my community, is there turmoil? Is there conflict? Is there injustice? And what would God have me do about it? How could God use me maybe to model peacemaking in my family or in my workplace or in my school or in my neighborhood? And maybe just one practical thing is it starts with listening to understand instead of listening to prove someone wrong, to win the argument, you know, and to walk away justified because, you know, I showed them. And we seek not our own personal advancement, but the welfare, the prosperity of the community. In other words, we look at where are things broken? Not just the roads. I mean, that's kind of an obvious one, right? <laughs> It'd be great if we could, you know, pitch in and buy a truck of hot mix asphalt and, you know, get things going. But where do things in my world not look like the way they ought to look? That's what Jeremiah is getting at here. Maybe it's kids going to bed hungry or not living in a safe home. Maybe it's teachers having to buy classroom supplies out of their own personal money. Maybe it's people bankrupted by medical bills. I mean, on and on and on. God says, we flourish when we help others flourish. Did, did you get that? When the community prospers, you will prosper. Your blessing is tied up with being a blessing in the place that I have put you. So, seek the flourishing of the place where you are aliens and strangers and exiles. It's not your home. 
But God has us here to bless it, to serve it. God wants us to see it get better by blessing people who may even hate us, reject us, and misunderstand us. And, and that doesn't mean we necessarily need to create some new Christian organization to do that. I mean, that's not wrong. Those are wonderful blessings and, and good opportunities to serve. But you can go out as an ambassador of Jesus into the organizations and the structures and the boards and, and the groups that already exist in the community. That, that we would be the best servants, the best citizens, the best volunteers, the best workers, not to advance ourselves, but to love and seek the welfare of this place so that we don't just go out into the world and, and get jobs that will pay us the most money so that we can get the most from it. But because we live in this world as people who already have a better hope and a better inheritance. Because God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so now out of the fullness that we have in Christ, we go out into the world not needing to get something from it. But now we go out as people who are full and able to pour out in order to see others prosper and to come to know the richness and the blessing that God has given us in Christ. Bless this community, God says. Love it. Serve it. Joey did a great job a few weeks ago helping us see the, the bigger story in Jeremiah 29. Our work is rooted in this mandate in Genesis to develop the creation, to fill the earth, to subdue it for our glory. And, and we messed it up, and we're messed up, and now the world is broken because we got it all wrong and backwards, because we made it about our glory and our success and our prestige and our lordship. But now Jesus comes to reconcile us and to set us right towards God and towards this world. So that now Jesus, the second Adam, is the one who has come and obeyed perfectly and is now fulfilling God's mandate by filling the earth with people who are regenerated in the image of God and now go out to love and serve and rule over the creation for its good and God's glory. So our work here is now shaped by that command and the recognition of a future work that our work here is pointing us towards. Because one day Jesus is going to return. He's going to set the world right. He's going to redeem it. He's going to renew it. And we will rule with him in a new heavens and a new earth. Are you glad that eternity is not us floating on clouds playing harps? I, I don't even know how to play a harp, and I don't think God cares. The ultimate reality is a new heavens and a new earth with the tree of life and the stream, the river of life whose water is for the healing of the nations, and the kings of the nation bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. We're going to be having art and music and literature and science and research and Everything that we do here as workers in God's world is going to be part of eternity. You see that we're made for work. Work is not a curse. Work came before the curse. And the good news is that God's going to redeem it and will now have meaningful, fulfilling, 
glorious work that will be satisfying to us and blessing for God and each other. And that means now all our talents and creativity and work that we're doing here are even pointing us forward and preparing us for what we're going to do forever. That is good news about the work that we have here and now. God says to his exiled people, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. That is the future we're heading towards. But God gives that promise to people who are living in Babylon. Because we need that hope, living in a messed up, broken world, full of pain and disappointment and frustration. There is a hope for you, God says. I'm going to bring you home, but it's not today. It's not tomorrow. So don't sit around waiting for it to happen. Don't refuse to get involved because it's going to happen someday. We are heading for a homeland where we will dwell eternally with God. And we are strangers and foreigners here. And as God's ambassadors, we love this place. We serve this place. We bless this place just as Jesus did. Because this world was not Jesus' home either. He left his home. He set aside his prerogatives, his pleasure, the worship that he had in heaven to come into this world, to love it, to bless it, to do good to it. So as we follow ourselves, we invest our lives in the way Jesus invested himself in this world. We love this world the way Jesus did. We bless this world the way Jesus did. God's vision for his ambassadors is this. Commit yourselves to this place. Love and bless this community and these people in Jesus' name. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have good plans for us. Yes, to prosper us ultimately in Christ, one day eternally, to give us a hope and a future. And Father, we pray that that would shape how we live and how we look at and how we love and engage with this world here and now. Father, in our Babylon, as we live as exiles and strangers and ambassadors, may we do that with the heart and the mind and the will and the love and the mission of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.